back down and shut your trap. It's time for keeping it sports with them three. Are you ready? Are you ready? Well, I'll need some beer. Are you ready? You have to ask me nicely. Come on now, don't be bashful. Are you ready? place for the best sports talk and news surrounding each league. I can prove it with my usual flawless logic. Hey man, this time I'm gonna do it my way. Uh, what's your name again? And now, here's your host, M3, Mike Rosansky. Good afternoon everyone. Coming to you from Cherry Hill, New Jersey, it's time for Keeping It Sports with M3, powered by the Connecticut School of Broadcasting. How's everything going out there? Hope you all have a great Monday afternoon. This is the sixth day of the month of June, first Monday of the month. A very exciting month for yours truly, uh, personal-wise, because later this month, a couple of Friends of mine will be getting married, and hopefully by then this on-again, off-again cough that you guys have been hearing me do in these podcasts for about a month now will dissipate, and I won't be turning their wedding into a giant cough fest, but still got about, (coughs) oh, there we go again, still got about uh, 10 days or, or so to get that out of the system and be fully ready to go. Until then, a lot of things to uh, talk about, a lot of things uh, to uh, really rant about, rave about, you know, with the NHL playoffs uh, going on the and the uh, excitement are buzzing around here with the uh, Rangers, not so much out west. Uh, give some thoughts about that later on. Uh, the Yankees... You know, off to a great start in their season or continuing the great start in their season, looking like the best team in baseball on and off the field. A lot of uh, good news with uh, them in this last week. And some guys uh, that have local connections not having the best of week in uh, baseball. Also, some things uh, to touch upon in the NFL as well. It's it's funny. The NFL never seems to just have a dull moment, never seems to just have a a moment where they can, you know, slip through the cracks and uh, let everyone else have sunshine. But, hey, that's why they have become America's pastime. But I want to focus the start of this show on – the NBA Finals were, you know, the it's interesting that, you know, I know we see this all the time with uh, the Golden State Warriors, but the theme of this Finals has almost, it's come down to 12 minutes a night. Hell, you want to um, even lessen that. It's come down to, a quick burst over four, four and a half minutes uh, a night where we've seen before with the Warriors where they have these insane third quarters. But you would think by now 
that someone would notice maybe not how to stop it but slow it down calm it down ease it down because this has been of the steve carr era and that's what we're going to call this it's the steve carr era not not the the steph curry era not the clay thompson draymond green era it's the steve carr era because he's been able to take three different facets of this team and go to an nba finals we talked about last week with how these guys were young talented players and he put them in a system um, that focused on passing the ball and getting the best shot it led steph curry to winning back-to-back mvps and them going to -to back-to-back finals against the cavaliers then they bring in kevin durant and they were unstoppable durant leaves clay gets hurt and you're thinking, oh, it's the run is over. The, they're just going to go back to a being an average meddling team. And really, it was just the three years of them pressing the pause button, having a chance to reset everything and develop a new group around Curry, Thompson, and Draymond to the point where now they look like they have you know, another three to four years in them of being a championship contending team. And that's no slight, no disrespect to any of the other contenders that will be back in the fold in the Western Conference next year or who could emerge out East. Hell, it's no no disrespect to the Celtics who have still more than enough opportunities to win this series But when you look at Golden State and the fact that they've been able to turn Jordan Poole into some people's minds a young emerging star and get the work that they get on given nights, whether it be from Wiggins or a Looney or, you know, having, you know, players that aren't even uh, in the mix here, some of the young players, uh, out with injury this year, never even getting uh, anything from uh, their young big man, um, you realize that this team has the makings to be a championship contender for several more years here. And last night, you know, while if they would have lost last night, it wouldn't have ended the series because hell, they've seen it before that going up or down 2 nothing in an NBA Finals doesn't assure anything. They've fell victim of that back in 2016. It would have been a treacherous road to overcome if the Warriors had gone down uh, 0-2 with the first two games being at their building and the series shifting to Boston starting on Wednesday night, especially with how, I don't know if you want to call it heartbreaking, because to me, heartbreaking is a last-second shot or you know, blowing a, a big lead with about two minutes to go in a game. Thursday night was more of a what-the-hell-just-happened because... They seemingly had the game in control going into the fourth quarter. You had your normal 
Warriors blitz in the third quarter where they outscored the Celtics by 14, took a 12-point lead <laughs> heading into the fourth, <laughs> and you're thinking, oh, here we go. The Warriors are going to lock up game one. There was people were even uh, beginning to discuss how did the Celtics bounce back from this. And the, the Celtics did to the Warriors what we've seen the Warriors do so many times where they go on these runs over a couple minutes where it looks like the other team is standing still and they're running on turbo, almost like it's a you know NBA Live, the video game here. Going on a 20-2 run in that fourth quarter, outscoring them 40-16. to And the Warriors, you know, the, the, what was most disappointing about the Warriors in the uh, that fourth quarter or more surprising because disappointing makes it sound like I'm some kind of Warriors fanboy. I really have no dog in the fight other than wanting to see this go seven games. But what was most disappointing about the Warriors is the lack of aggressiveness in that fourth quarter. The fact that there was one instance where they passed the ball around the, the arc Four times in one possession down the court. And each guy had an open shot, seemingly timid of taking that chance. And meanwhile, the Celtics are jacking up um, threes left and right. And when you have Al Horford uh, going six of eight from three-point arc, that is just a... a bewildering stat a stat that if you're a Warriors fan you, you can't you're looking at it and you're like is that even real right between him smart and and white going 15 of 23 from behind the three-point arc and what was even crazier about that run they went on you got nothing from Jason Tatum in that fourth quarter he he essentially was just a body standing out there he was just a you know, essentially the the Celtics were playing four versus five basketball and it wasn't killing them. It wasn't, you know, a detriment to them at all in uh, that fourth quarter. And they you know, went from at one point trailing 101-97 to having a 14-point lead. And like, if you're a Warrior fan, especially after the, Great first quarter Curry had, putting up 21 in the first. You left sitting there like, what the hell just happened? This is what we normally do to the opposition, and they did it back to us. So while a loss last night would not have ended things for the Warriors, it was important, imperative for them to tie this thing up heading to Boston on Wednesday night. And, you know, kind of calm down all of those that thought that this was going to be a quick series. Calm down anyone that thought that, oh, the Celtics had the Warriors figured out. I mean, it wasn't a 21-point first quarter, but Steph came out hot in the the first. Now, they were able to make Jason Tatum a non-factor in the second half of this game. 
And whereas Marcus Smart and Al Horford were, you know, just walking buckets in game one, the two of them combined for four points in uh, a game two. I'm, I'm not even going to include Robert Williams in that because he's clearly playing injured in the this <coughs> series. I mean, he's more or less out there on one leg, hop, hobbling around with how um, you know, beat up and, you know, I don't, do you say out of shape, maybe out of game shape, but he, there's clearly something wrong with Robert Williams that you're not getting the full extent of him in the, this series, but it was another example of third quarter dominance by the Warriors. The, that 19 to two run in the final, uh, Four minutes of the third quarter was what locked it up. And the fact that the the Celtics didn't even make one basket in that final four-minute stretch kind of sealed their fate last night. It was a couple things that you know decided the game. A, Carr made what had to be a tough emotional decision, but was, was the right decision uh, team-wise, taking Andre Iguodala off the active roster and adding Gary Payton uh, the second back on there um, to add a, a little bit better defense uh, for uh, this unit. And you know, well, it, it may be tough because you know Iggy's meant so much to that team as far as you know him being the first true unrestricted free agent to sign with this group and leading the turnaround from the Warriors being the joke of a franchise we once knew them to being to being a championship contender. It almost adds another coach onto the bench because you, you've seen, even when Iguodala was injured in the last round, it wasn't like he was disinterested. It wasn't like he wasn't involved. He was running up um, as guys were at the scores table checking in, let, um, letting them know certain assignments, certain things that he's seeing throughout the game from the bench that could be a big factor. So even if he's not part of things on the court and his participation on the court has been you know, um, mild at best, he could still have an impact being on the bench for uh, this team. But now the, I, now I was kind of disappointed in the effort by the Celtics last night. The Celtics almost played that game like it's like, hey, we're cool. We got one game under our belt on the road. We can go handle business at home rather than having a killer mindset, having a mindset of let's push our um, – foot right on the gas here and put the Warriors in a very difficult, very disadvantageous position of coming to our place down 0-2. Figured, you know, after the big performance they had in the fourth quarter of game one, they would have just came out of, with a, a more lockdown mindset than they did, but they seemed disinterested at times, uh, were careless and lazy with the basketball at times. I mean, they were outscored by 18 on points off of turnovers. And they also, 
they let Draymond Green get in their head. You know, we know that Draymond's going to try to muck things up, going to try and, um, you know, make the game hairy. And that, you know, that you saw Jalen Brown, how emotional he got. Uh, if, you know, if I were the Celtics, I wouldn't have held him back. Because think about it. Draymond already had one technical foul at, at that point. If you would have allowed them to get into a more face-to-face confrontation, the refs might have called the double technical and th- gotten Draymond thrown out of the game. So, you know, that allowing Green to be part of the entire game for the Warriors uh, was a big uh, benefit for them. And another thing for the Celtics, you know, I know they tell this guy this all the time in practice, but they got to get Grant Williams to shut the hell up. All right, you're Grant Williams. You have not been around long enough. You're not good enough to be getting in drawing contests with the referees, looking at them, staring them down after every play. And then, let's face it, as we know Draymond Green, for as much of a fan of him as I am, I'll, I'll admit it. He's a pain in the ass. You know, he's one of the more unlikable players in the league, unless you're a Golden State Warriors fan. But that first incident with him and Grant Williams was more so instigated by Grant Williams. And Grant Williams is quickly becoming one of these guys that if I'm an official I'm going up to him right when he's checking into a game or right before the game, and I'm telling him, I'm not putting up with your BS tonight, all right? You're not a star. You're not a big-time player. You start any crap, the the second I hear a word from you directed at me, I'm I'm calling it a, a T. You know, and that that's just the mindset I've always had. There are certain guys that, you know, they know how to talk to officials. They know how to work the game. Grant Williams is not there yet. So, Ime Odoku, the rest of that coaching staff, hell, Tatum, Brown, somebody has to talk to Grant Williams and tell him to knock the crap off. Because in the long run, it's just going to hurt the Celtics if he keeps getting in these confrontations with Draymond Green or instigating this this nonsense because it's just going to give the Warriors more motivation and uh, get them more fired up rather than uh, be a morale boost for the Boston Celtics. And, you know, the only thing not to like with this series so far, besides the the swings at the end of the third quarter into the fourth quarter here, you're, you're seeing where it just seems one team is completely taking over the game. We haven't gotten that 48 minutes of back-and-forth back classic that I think we'll get at some point in this series. It just hasn't happened yet. Is the time we have in between games here. and <laughs> The fact that you have, <laughs> we now have to wait till Wednesday for game three. But then it's a quick turnaround of Friday night for game four before another two-day turnaround for uh, game five. And I guess we kind of got spoiled there having games every other night. But at least so far, it hasn't been one team just absolutely dominating the series. All right, going to take my first break here, but I 
as I said before, I got a lot to talk about today. Give, give you some thoughts on the NHL playoffs. Um, got some baseball to talk about as well as some NFL stuff to uh, mix in here. So plenty to get me through the next oh, about 45 minutes or so here. Glad you could uh, join me this week. And as always at this time, please sit back, relax, help. Put your feet up if you feel like doing so. And continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. Welcome back to Keeping It Sports with M3. Now, as I said, even with uh, the NBA Finals, you know, the space between these games that you seemingly have two days to stop and wait in between games, at least we still also have the NHL playoffs going on. At least there's the fascination of what's going on on there and even with my team you know not being in the postseason mix even if the rangers weren't still in this i've been entertained i've been uh keeping uh my my antennas up keeping um attention on uh, these playoffs now do i wish that things could be a little bit more exciting, more eventful out West. Sure. Because we're sitting here on this Monday afternoon with the Colorado avalanche on the doorstep of heading to the Stanley cup final, having a three games to nothing lead over uh, the Edmonton Oilers. And you would have thought after game one that, Oh, we've got a back and forth, war about to take place we're gonna have six or seven games of these teams just going you know balls to the wall full throttle with how they you know it wasn't like they eased into this series by any means you you had you know a slugfest breakout in, in this game with how uh, goals were scored 
early and often, even chasing uh, poor Mike Smith uh, from the game uh, midway through the second period. And listen, I don't want to make this entire thing a crap fest on Mike Smith. Because, yes, he has, he has not played very well in this series and is one of the big reasons why the Oilers are just 60 minutes away from their season being ended. But I don't know what you could have expected. I, I think you've squeezed as much juice out of that orange as you possibly could. Because out of these four teams, the Oilers were the one that does not have a true, you know, lockdown, this is our guy at goaltender. They have a, a guy in Mike Smith who's had a nice, solid NHL career, has been able to stick in this league for the last, what, 15, 16 years, but he's been a journeyman. I, you, you look at it, you look at how his career has gone, Two years with the Stars, four with the Lightning, six with the Coyotes, two with the the Flames, and uh, three with the Edmonton Oilers. You know, he's a guy that has really very much jumped around this league. And, you know, his most success came with the Coyotes, and that's where he had his most playing time. He, in the 2011-2012 season, he started... 67 games, and then in uh, uh, back-to-back years, 2013-2014 and 2014-2015, he started 61 games. But other than that, he's been mostly in a goalie by committee or a backup goaltender situation. Like I said, he's been good enough to stick in this league, but he's he's not someone you look at and say, oh, that's a guy we can win a Stanley Cup with. That's a guy that can be a goaltender for a championship-level winning team. It hasn't been completely his fault because you look at it, the Avalanche are getting at least 10 shots more per game than are the the uh, Oilers and you know the all the talk in the coming into this was oh the NHL could possibly get their dream with the stars of of the likes of McDavid and Drysyle and company getting to a Stanley Cup final you know the new emerging stars that while you know Crosby and Ovechkin they're starting to get the, up there in years they're still good players but these are the guys that we expect to be the faces of uh, this um, sport for the next decade plus well Nathan McKenna Kennan he's outperformed both of them he's looking at sitting there on the other side raising his hand saying hi I'm here I exist you know why don't you show me some of the same love that you're showing uh, the boys up in Canada there? That, now, I was one of the top goal scorers in this sport uh, this season for a reason. 
and he, him along with uh, 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 the uh, play of Pavel Francoisar, um is the main reason, and I hope I got that goaltender's last name right. I've been working all night trying to pronounce it. The two of them, along with others, are the main reason why uh, the Avalanche are 60 minutes away from the cup final. Now, it's going to help them big time tonight. The fact that Evander Kane, who's arguably been the best player on the Oilers this postseason, is going to be out <laughs> after uh, that boarding hit against uh, uh, Nazim uh, Kadrai um, in Game 3. Now, pretty much a cheap shot. Hit him right from behind there. And uh, uh, Kadrai is going to likely miss the rest of this series and possibly the rest of the postseason after that hit. But Evander Kane's going to be out for tonight's game and we'll see if even being at home how much of a uh, negate that could be for any kind of uprising for the Oilers and if you're an Oilers fan you know, we've seen it before more so than in any other sport. We've seen it in the NHL. Teams come back from 3 and win a series. But if you're an Oilers fan, the, the, the number one thing you're asking for tonight is pride. Don't get eliminated on home ice. You shouldn't be thinking about how to come back from 3 tonight. What you should be thinking about is just win tonight. Show some pride and win tonight. Don't let them celebrate on our home ice. And then you, you move on to uh, game five and you take it one game at a time. Now, Ranger fans were probably hoping that they would be sitting in a 3-0 advantage heading for game four against the Lightning tomorrow night. But if you thought this was going to be an easy series, I think you're living in a delusional land. I think you're living, you know, in a world where edibles are breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day. Because the the lightning were not just going to go down without a fight. Yes, you got them in the first two games at the Garden. And I talked about it last week, how... You know, there was going to be the rest versus rust factor because the Lightning were coming into game one on nine days rest. And while they uh, were competitive early on, Shesterkin after 2-2 just locked this game uh, uh, down and um, you've, you seemingly got a full team effort uh, from the the Rangers, you know, their big stars, Zabanajak, Panarin, um, were in the, the, the mix, but uh, Philip Kittle um, had two goals there late in the second period that really seemed to take the emotion out of the uh, Lightning in uh, Game 1, really seemed to, you know, take away any of the 
you know, thoughts of a uh, comeback in uh, this game. That and the fact that the Lightning were horrible on the power play all night. Now, they put up a better fight, you know, finally getting back into game speed, finally getting back in the mix of things in game two. But still, Shesterkin has been the biggest star for the Rangers. I know, you know, Zabanajak has scored in in both these games. Uh, you've gotten good things from uh, Fox, Kreider, continuing to be a postseason star a, as well. But Shostarkin has outperformed Vasilevsky uh, in the uh, first two games of this series, which is saying something because Vasilevsky is a two-time uh, reigning defending Stanley Cup of uh, goaltender. He's a guy that you're already hearing people talk about as being on the Mount Rushmore of goaltenders in the history of this sport. So, and now it's been surprising his performance in this, the fact they gave up nine goals in the first two games after only giving up three in the previous round to the Panthers. But you had to know that the Lightning were going to come back and, you know, what do you want to call it, go down swinging or, you know, put a, a scare into the Rangers with game three. And what did help them is the fact that, you know, that building was quiet after a Kreider's goal there in the second period. The second power play goal they had in a three-minute span. It, the the building seemed to die down emotionally, but you had two penalties uh, in the final 30 minutes of play in this game by Jacob Truba that gave the Lightning uh, a second life, that gave the Lightning uh, a chance to say, all right, now let's finally get our power play going. Let, now let's uh, really uh, get things going. And you had to figure that the likes of Stamkos, uh, Kucherov, you know, these guys, you know, they've been there, they've done that. They're champions for a reason. They've been along the way. It wasn't just easy sailing for them to win these two cups the last two years. Along the way, there were hurdles, there were moments that they had to overcome, and this is just another one of those. So you, you knew that them, along with their um, big-time goaltender in Vasilevsky, they were going to stand up and show some pride uh, yesterday and finally get things going. You, between the three of them, uh, Hedman seemingly in the right place at the right time or knowing when to hit the right guy at, at the right time with some of his uh, assists yesterday. And then uh, Palat with the game-winning goal in the final minute, which stings, which kind of sucks if, you, if you're a Ranger fan. But, hey, you still have a 2-1 lead. You, you have game... Four coming up tomorrow night, a little extra time to rest with yesterday being an afternoon game and still an opportunity to 
win this game and take a commanding 3-1 lead heading back to the Garden for Game 5 on Thursday night. And while I said earlier, that does not guarantee anything. The Rangers, they came back from 3-1 against the Penguins, but we've seen teams come back from 3-1, 3-0 down in series and win this in in, the past in the NHL. So the Lightning, they're more than capable of coming back and winning this series. But for any Ranger fan who thought that, A, this was going to be easy or is all downtrodden after yesterday, it's one game. Move on and try to take uh, the edge in the next one. Got to take another break here. Come back on the other side. Turn my attention to baseball as we have the most dominant team in major league baseball at least on paper in this area right now continue keeping it sports with m3 i'll be back Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. Reminder, as always, of all the places that you can find the podcast across social media. Remember, the main place that you can find this podcast each and every single week is, of course, on facebook.com slash keeping it sports with M3. Go there, click the like button. You can watch the podcast, listen to it, um, either from um the website or app known as Podbeam, as well as uh, find it on Spotify each and every single week, either later tonight or um, early Tuesday morning. That is usually the time frame that I will post the podcast. Also find so on Twitter, my personal Twitter account is at m 3 as well as the account for the podcast is at Keeping It Sports. And on Instagram, find me on the name 
M3 for life, excuse me, and on keeping it sports with M3. That's keeping underscore it underscore with underscore uh, sports. Let me start that again. Keeping underscore it underscore sports underscore with underscore M3. That's where you can find uh, both links on uh, Instagram. You know, I want to give someone a lot of credit because there was a person that could have taken the wrong route in a, a uncomfortable situation last week. Now, last week during a Minnesota Twins game, as teams will so often do, midway through the game something, they'll either show highlights or show news that's going on around the sport. So on Thursday afternoon, the Minnesota Twins showed highlights of the Yankees' afternoon portion of their day-night doubleheader with the Anaheim Angels. And in that game, you had another wonderful performance by Nestor Cortez, who continues to lead the American League in ERA. Just been one of the best individual stories in this sport this season. And Minnesota Twins had on the broadcast with them as a guest, former Minnesota Twin and soon to be a Baseball Hall of Famer, uh, the great Jim Cott. And Jim Cott uh, made... uh, a comment about Nestor Cortez that it was meant to be playful, but did not come out correctly. He talked about how much he loved Cortez as a pitcher and gave him, decided to give him the nickname of Nestor the Molester. And when I read that, I'm like, ooh, Jim, no, don't. No, I, I, I hope, you know, that didn't make air, but unfortunately it did. And that there were, you know, a lot of people oh, like, oh, no, how is Cortez going to react to this? Like uh, Jim Cott later in that game, once he got talked to by someone, came on the broadcast and apologized and while it's not to the level of you know Tom Brenneman a couple of years ago using a uh, a insensitive stereotype when, or a homophobic stereotype it's not something that a should be said or b even more said on television and you know Chimcott <laughs> said uh, apologize on the air um, said that he would uh, apologize in in, uh, in person or uh, send a phone call to uh, Cortez, and it was either later in in that day or on Friday where Nestor Cortez posted on Twitter. No, hey, we're good. I talked to Jim Cott. No, no one make a big deal of this. Things happen. Uh, I'm not going to make a big deal. Let's move on. Rather than 
cancel him. Let's prop him up and and uh, use this as a teaching moment. Because remember, a couple weeks ago, the same thing happened with Nestor Cortez, where his uh, tweets from his teen years became public knowledge when some ass clown was trying to you know, ruin his life and humiliate him based on tweets that he put out there 10 years ago. So Cortez realizes that people can make mistakes, can realizes that, you know, that, you know, that, that people will sometimes speak out of turn on, on things. And rather than, you know, make an entire situation of this, he took the right route in, in, in my opinion. And, you know, it can be a dead topic now, but Wanted to give Cortez some some credit and a shout out there for handling things the absolute right way because he could have held a grudge. I know I may or may not have held a grudge, but he definitely handled things the the right way, especially when it comes to someone who's always been known as a gentleman uh, like Jim Cott. I I thought that was very big of Cortez how he handled that entire situation and. Now, Cortez has been as big a reason why this Yankee team is right now the best team in baseball. I, you, you look at best record in the sport, best record at home in, in the sport. They have been utterly dominant, and it starts with their starting pitching, which I don't know if you could have said that coming into this season. I if. If you could, would have said that coming into the year, that the first third of the season, the Yankees' biggest strength would have been their starting pitching, you would have needed to be drug tested. The fact that we sit here on June 6th and the Yankees have the best rotation ERA in baseball is phenomenal. I mean, and just in this last week, you look at what the Yankees starting rotation did. 5-0, and the only game that they did not get credited for the win was yesterday, but still pulled off a W. 5-0 and in 42 and a third innings. They've given up five hits, four runs, struck out 40 batters, only walked five batters, and allowed only one home run. And in the midst of that, you had Jamison Tyon and Garrett Cole on back-to-back -back days take perfect games into the seventh inning before giving up a hit, including Tyon, who was perfect heading into the eighth inning. And at one point, it had the feel of something magical, of something historic happening there. But, you know, the, this Yankee rotation... One through five is, you know, handling their business. And I think a lot of it, the credit has to go to the fact that they are playing so much better defense than they were last year. You've seen upgrades at third base, you know, with Donaldson over Urshela, even though Urshela was viewed as a good third baseman. Donaldson has added a little something extra with his arm at third base. The up, the clear upgrade up the middle with getting Glaber Torres and the rest of the, the uh, curmudgeons that were playing shortstop uh, last year. While Conor Falefa is not flashy, 
he gets the job done. He's been making the plays that you need him to make there at shortstop. And Glaber looks so much more comfortable over at second base. Plus, having a full season of Anthony Rizzo at first base has done wonders. That's why... You know, they have the second best fielding percentage in the sport. Why they've had the second least amount of errors in, in uh, baseball at only 19. Hell, they probably had 19 errors in the first you know, month of the season last year. That's how dismal it, in certain spots they were defensively. So, you know, while... You came into this year, you were expecting, oh, it was going to be the power of this Yankee lineup and the bullpen carrying the day for the Yankees. It's been the starting pitching that has led the way, especially when you take a look at the fact that they have two black holes in that lineup, as we talked about last week with Gallo and Hicks. And they started to hear it over this weekend. And I do think some of that, is based on the fact that a fan favorite, a homegrown Yankee in Miguel Andujar, was once again sent back to the minor leagues. And while Andujar wasn't knocking the cover off the ball, he was definitely doing a lot more than you've seen from either Hicks or Gallo so far this season. Hell, you know, he wasn't awful in left field. It So far, left field looked like his best position in uh, the big leagues and this is a guy that you know unfortunately minor league options are what's causing him to be down there and he's shown in his time in the big leagues he has what it takes to play here I, back in 2018 and i i know it seems like a while ago now but he could have and probably should have won the rookie of the year that year he has shown that he is deserving of being on a big league roster. It's just a numbers game thing and him being the one guy with minor league options that's hurt him. That's why, no, I don't blame him asking to be traded, him wanting out of here because he deserves to be in the big leagues somewhere. Now, elsewhere, the there were a couple things as far as uh, you know, local flavor over the, the last uh, couple days. One, with the Philadelphia Phillies firing their manager, Joe Girardi. Joe Girardi, who you know I'm a big fan of, who I'm a big believer of as a manager. And not just because he won the World Series with the Yankees in, in 2009, but as great as that was, I still to this day believe his most impressive managerial jobs for the Yankees were the 2013 and 2014 New York Yankees. You look at all the injuries that they dealt with in 2013, all of the nonsense that they had to deal with from Alex Rodriguez, and then the next year, how it was Jeter's retirement year, and that roster pretty much sucked on paper. The fact that he got 85 and 84 wins respectively out of those two teams to me is remarkable. To me, should have put him in higher consideration for manager of the year. And let's face it, he's just, even though he's not 
the most lovey-dovey manager in the world. He has more of a drill sergeant's personality rather than, you know, what you're seeing over in Queens with Buck Showalter where he wants to get to know his players. He even, no, he's not into things like, no, Shakira, Eminem, Jay-Z, all, all of that. He wants to know what his players' interests are. Uh, Girardi is more of a, you know, stonewalled, cold emotions kind of manager. Not yelling and screaming like you saw with, you know, old school like managers, but definitely like Billy Martin and, and such, but definitely someone that does not have a close, uh, touchy feely relationship with his players. Now, what the Phillies are dealing with this year should not be solely placed on Joe Girardi because he was dealt a awful hand here. You know, Cohen, I know they swept the Angels over the weekend, including uh, having a walk-off home run uh, yesterday. But going into Friday, they were 22-29, and 12 games back of the Mets in the NL East. And the biggest reasons are Dave Dombrowski, the president of baseball operations there, put together a, a horrible offseason for this team. The two weaknesses of the Phillies, he did not improve at all. Whether it be their bullpen, which he spent a combined $22 million on the likes of Corey Knable, Brad Hand, and Jerris Familia, and quite frankly, they have not done the job. I mean, Knubel got bailed out yesterday, but he blew uh, another save uh, chance yesterday. Brad Hand's been walking the ballpark in most of his opportunities, and Jerris Familia has been, you know, Jerris Familia for the most part. They have not, they did not, you know, fix what's been a problem with the Phillies for the last couple of years. Even Joe Girardi, as much of a wizard as he is with managing bullpens, was not able to solve that. And they have one of the worst defensive lineups in the sport. And part of that is brought on with the fact that Bryce Harper is dealing with this tear in his elbow that is allowing him to be a DH but preventing him from playing the outfield. So now you have, in your corner outfields, you have Kyle Swerber in left field and Nick Castellanos in right field. Two guys, neither one of them is viewed as even a league average defensive player out there. I mean, Kyle Swerber, I, I saw him run head-on into a Dubal Herrera on a play uh, last week when they were playing the Mets. Kyle Swerber, the best thing that uh, you could say about him is that he can hit the ball a country mile. He should not be seeing the field. He should be the Phillies' designated hitter. But because of the injury to Harper, the only way to get them all in the lineup together is by having him play left field. And they don't they clearly don't want to take Reese Hoskins off of first base and push him into the outfield because that was kind of a disaster a couple of years ago when they initially tried that. So Dombrowski 
It's just using Girardi as the fall guy here. Eventually, it's all going to come back to bite uh, Dombrowski because he had, quite frankly, a horrible offseason. And their sweep this weekend coincide with a big issue that's going on with the West Coast team. And that's the Angels have completely fallen apart. The Angels have now lost 11 games in a row. And they're the fifth team in the last 25 years that had a 10-game losing streak after being at least 10 games over 500. Four of those, three of those previous four, excuse me, missed the postseason. The only one being uh, the 2017 uh, Los Angeles Dodgers. But right now, you know, you look at the Angels, they're a game under 500. Even with this losing streak, they'd be the third wild card in the American League, which says something about the bottom half of the American League, quite frankly. But they've fallen to eight and a half games behind the Houston Astros in the NL West. Mike Trout, in his last seven games, is 0 for 26. Think about that, what I just said there right now. Mike Trout, who's viewed by most as the best player in this sport, is 0 for his last 26. And you, know, you look at the, the Angels, you know, they got off to a 27-17 and 17 start. They were scoring about five runs per game. You know, kind of middle in, in the pack um, average-wise, but... Pitching pretty well, running out there a six-man rotation with the limitations of Otani and some of their guys coming off of injuries like Syndergaard. But in the last 11 games, they've not been able to score runs. Uh, They scored two runs combined in the doubleheader against the Yankees last week. Hell, they scored three runs that entire series. And their pitching staff has fallen apart. They have an ERA of just under seven and a whip of one and a half in their last 11 games. Between Otani getting beat up in his last couple starts, Noah Syndergaard not being very good. And on on paper, that pitching staff as a whole, the woes of them finally coming to the surface. Plus, they're missing a big piece of that lineup with Anthony Rendon um, injured and being out until at least probably the end of this month. That coincide with getting very little out of Trout and Otani right now, and you figure those guys will pick it up offensively. But still, you know the, the Angels. You now every year, it seems like it's the the national media's goal for the Angels to make the postseason, to get Mike Trout back in the postseason because they can't get over the fact that he went 0 for 12 in his one postseason appearance back in 2014, I believe it was, against the uh, Kansas City Royals. It's okay, people. I mean, we're not going to view Mike Trout any less if he doesn't get back to the postseason, baseball's going to go on. Baseball's going to continue. The sport is having a great year, whether 
Trout and the Angels make the postseason or not. So this hysteria of the, oh my God, Mike Trout and the Angels, they've fallen apart. They're not going to make the playoffs. Everyone take a chill. Take a chill pill. You know, you've got still great stories like the Yankees, the Dodgers, the Mets, who are shown they're the class of Major League Baseball right now. The Astros, you know, still in the mix there as well with the resurgence of Justin Verlander, showing that even without Correa, that that team is still a team to deal with in uh, the American League. So things are going to be okay. We don't need Mike Trout and Otani to make the postseason for this season to count, for this season to matter. So the immediate buy hole needs to take a chill pill on this whole thing and stop acting like it's the what the Angels are going through is the absolute worst thing in the world. Got to take another break here, come back, close things out for this week in Keeping It Sports with M3. I'll be back. Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. Okay, a few more minutes left here for a couple more things on I haven't talked about them at all in this podcast, but uh, shout out to the Mets on the weekend that they had. Very easily could have lost, you know, three out of four or get swept by the Dodgers this weekend, especially with how they seem listless and lifeless in the first two games of that four game set. But the way that they bounce back with you know they they were down 4-1 to uh, Bueller on Saturday night playing without Lindor after the the whole you know slamming his thumb on his uh a hotel door situation whatever happened there and this offense you know came to life there after that after giving up a four spot to the Dodgers they took it to Bueller and chased him early in that game. He had a couple of home runs by uh, Alonzo. And you know, no, that used to be a game that the Mets would normally lose. 
but they found a way to win. And yet yesterday, they're down two runs heading into the eighth inning, uh, put up a, a four spot there, and their bullpen. You know, they they I was surprised they brought in Diaz for the eighth inning. Uh, it's been something that Buck has not typically done using his closer in the eighth inning, but it was the top of the lineup. He wanted him to face them, thought that he could trust Seth Lugo, but Lugo gave it up there in the uh, the ninth inning that allowed this to game to go to extra innings, but the Mets still, they didn't get down on themselves. They found a way to win this game, got the, the big uh, hit by J.D. Davis in extra innings to score Alonzo. You get... The uh, save there by Medina in the the uh, bottom half of the inning. A young kid who essentially was the last man uh, up, their last uh, guy that they could really go to in that pen yesterday, and him to lock things down uh, like that and not be phased by the whole goofy, stupid runner on second base nonsense was a big win for the Mets. You know, sometimes... No, I talked about what was it last week, the week before, how I was disappointed with the Yankees splitting in Tampa. Well, splits can be very different things. You know, after, as I said, after the first two games, it very easily could have been a sweep or the Mets losing three out of four. But they found a way to win those two games and made you feel a little bit different about. Uh, this road trip made you feel a little bit different about this team coming out of this weekend. Now, last week, Aaron Donald appeared on the I Am Athlete podcast with you know Brandon Marshall, uh, Adam Pacman Jones. I think also Chad Ochocinco is on that um, every every once in a while, but. Uh, those those are the main crew part of that. And Aaron Donald was on there talking about his future in the sport, which we have all assumed it's a lock that Aaron Donald's going to play next year. The, the Rams have almost talked about it like it's a lock that Aaron Donald's going to play the 2022 season. Well, you read and hear his comments from uh, uh, this I wouldn't put it down as a lock I wouldn't put it down as a sure thing that we're going to see the best defensive player of the last decade back in the NFL this coming year when especially when he he talks about he said he didn't he doesn't need to be football need to play football to be fine he said quote I was blessed to play this game, to make the money I made. The accomplishments I made in eight years is like, I'm complete. If I can win another one, that's great. If not, I'm at peace. He he talked about how it isn't about the money. It's about the business at the end of the day. And let's face it, when players say it's not about the money, it is about the money. But it's about the fact that yeah, he signed through 2024, but he doesn't have any guaranteed money left on his contract. So he wants to get guarantees put back in there and have that 
you know, level of respect put back on there rather than at some point be looked at as a, a cap casualty like he saw uh, his uh, now former teammate Von Miller have to uh, deal with in the last couple of years. But, you know, that's the big thing with him. A, he wants to be respected. B, he wants to feel like he's got a, a chance to uh, win a championship. But I would not blame him if he walked away. Because even in these eight years, even in what seems like a little amount of time in professional sports, but in the NFL, probably feels like a lifetime. And the fact that he's still, he's younger than me, for Christ's sakes. He's 31 years old. He's never dealt with a debilitating injury. I don't even think he's had a concussion. Has been relatively healthy. And in those eight years, he's had as great an eight-year run as we've seen from any player. I, it, it's it's not LT level because LT was a league MVP at one point. But you look at it, Defensive Rookie of the Year. Three-time Defensive Player of the Year. Seven-time All-Pro First-Team All-Pro. Made the Pro Bowl every year. Part of the All-Decade team for the 2010s. He could walk away right now, and he's going to um, sprint into Canton. He's a he's a fir future first ballot Hall of Famer. And, you know, he doesn't have to put himself at risk anymore. He's been... Very careful with his money. He's been very careful with his health, his body. Kept himself in great shape. Kept himself in top of football peak shape. So could you really blame him? I mean, not everybody is Tom Brady where they're going to play 22 years in the sport or play a, over a decade and a half. Sometimes some guys want to get out early. And in the game of football, with some of the things we've seen, like – just in the last week, I know different sides of the ball, but with the passing of Marion Barber, and we remember how hard-hitting a running back he was. And now you read the stuff about how his life started to take a downfall and was dealt, dealing with a lot of mental problems after he left the game. Could you really blame someone for wanting to get out of football for after only eight years? I can't. So you're not going to hear any complaints from me or hearing any uh, questioning of Aaron Donald's decision if he just so happens to say that, thanks, but no thanks, LA Rams. I've had enough. And I think that there needs to be more respect shown for someone who has decided to call it a career. Because just the other day, someone who's become somewhat popular in this sport, sometimes for the right reasons, sometimes for the wrong reasons, announced his retirement. Ryan Fitzpatrick, after 17 years in the NFL, has retired. And I almost feel like his career, in some ways, is treated as a joke. In some ways, it's treated as like this kind of funny haha thing and not shown as much respect because you look at it on paper someone like Ryan Fitzpatrick 
should not have made it. He's not the biggest. He's not the most physically most imposing quarterback in the world. And he was a seventh round draft pick by the Rams back in 05. Seventh round. Typically, those guys don't hang around in the sport. Sometimes they make a roster and they hang around for a year or two, something like that, before moving on to some other career endeavor. But Ryan Fitzpatrick, coming out of Harvard, was able to turn being a seventh-round pick out of an Ivy League school into having a 17-year career in the NFL. Now, it was with multiple franchises, the Rams, Bengals, Bills, Titans, Texans, Jets, Buccaneers, Dolphins, and Washington football team. But he had a very respectable career. Now, he's a guy, I've always said this about Ryan Fitzpatrick. You don't want to go into the season with him as your starting quarterback. I saw it firsthand with the Jets in 2016. What a disaster that turned into. You more so want Ryan Fitzpatrick to be the guy after the guy. You want him to come in and try to play the role of hero after either your starting quarterback gets hurt or underperforms. Hell, we saw it in his couple of years with the Dolphins. Tua underperformed uh, late in the season, and he came in in relief in a couple of games and pulled some wins out of his you-know-what to at least keep the Dolphins in competitive playoff hope. And I remember that Saturday night game against the Raiders late in the season where Tua underperformed and Fitzpatrick came in in the second half and pulled out a W there for them. And while, you know, he by no means is someone that is going to the Hall of Fame, that's perfectly fine. Not everyone's an all-time great. His numbers were respectable, just under 61% completion percentage. Uh, He... Thankfully, had more touchdowns than interceptions. He was the first quarterback in NFL history to throw for over 400 yards in three consecutive games. Did that with the Bucks in 2018. Had just under 35,000 yards passing. He had a very respectable NFL career. And rather than, oh, people want to bring up, you know, low lights or want to make fun of his beard, respect the fact that a seventh round draft pick was able to turn his career into such a long, lengthy one as he did there. You know, he came one quarter away from having a special place in Jets fans' hearts. If they would have won that final game in 2015, I still to this day have nightmares about that game. You know, he would be remembered upon more favorably from Jet fans. And, you know, maybe that's because we've been hoping and praying for a franchise quarterback for a long time. That's why I've been saying all offseason that everyone needs to just calm down and chill with their expectations on the New York Jets. It's going to come down (laughs) to Zach Wilson and him proving that he's the guy. And 
know, some of the articles I saw over the weekend, people, you know, criticizing Zach, saying that, oh, he's struggling in OTAs, making such a big deal of that wanting clickbait. Like, to me, that's ridiculous. But I just want the Jets to go into this year as under the radar as possible. I'm, I'm sick and tired of turning on the TV and seeing the likes of Dan Orlowski saying that, oh, he could be like how Patrick Mahomes was in this second year, which Dan forgets. Patrick Mahomes sat for most of his rookie year outside of week 17, while Zach played for most of his rookie year and had to deal with the true um, grind of a rookie quarterback and had less talent around him than Patrick Mahomes did and currently does. Yes, this Jet roster on paper has improved. They, I like the signings that they made, whether bringing in CJ Umzama or uh, adding uh, uh, Lincoln Tomlinson to that uh, offensive line. And hopefully Makai Becton is healthy so that we can see that offensive line at full strength. It, there's no complaints so far about what they did in the draft. You know, drafting Sauce Gardner, Garrett Wilson, trading back into the first round and drafting Jermaine Johnson. But still, you got to see these guys play out on the field. But as much as I hope for it, as much as I want it, I just want to go in with a sense of calmness, sense of no expectations with the Jets and hope to be surprised. Rather than everybody getting my hopes up and saying, oh, the Jets could be a 10-win team this year, the Jets could make the playoffs, the Jets have not earned the right to set expectations. The Jets have not earned the right for us as fans to be thinking playoffs or bust this year. So as much as a diehard Jet fan as I am, I'm a season ticket holder as well, can we all just chill the hell out and let things play out on the field rather than setting some kind of unrealistic expectations for this team. Remember everyone, it's June 6th, all right? It's not September. We still got a long way to go before games are played on the field. Let it play out. And that, my friends, was Keeping It Sports with Evan 3 from Monday, June 6, 2022. Everyone have a great night. Have a great week. Stay safe. Stay healthy. And I'll talk to you guys again same time next week. Peace. We have to go. Good night, everybody. I have had enough of you. Thank you for all the fun. Thank you. Hey, shut up, will ya? I don't want to see you. I don't want to hear you. I don't want to smell you. Now leave. I'll be back.